Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day of rest, this day of worship, this day in which we can be encouraged, challenged, and grow. Uh, use this time to that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So last week I said we were going to begin a series on the cost of discipleship. And I'm taking that out of Luke 14 and the passage in Luke 14, but I'm also wanting to follow along uh, and, and emphasize some of the really good bits <laughs> in probably the most famous book uh, on this topic that has been written in the last hundred years. Uh, and the, the author is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And the title is The Cost of Discipleship. So how many of you are familiar with just the name? How many of you heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the Cost of Discipleship? Okay. So how many of you have read Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the Cost of Discipleship? Okay. Well, that's, that, you're, you're, you're pretty much a representative sample. You are not alone. Don't feel, uh, uh, let down. But but it has been a um, it, it it it's a work that hit in the 1940s and was challenging and shocking, and it has enjoyed a, a, a resurgence in popularity, particularly in the 1990s. Uh, it became very popular again. And uh, evangelicals have, have read it. I've read the book a number of times over the years. Uh, I find it very, very helpful, very encouraging. I want to be very, very clear, not just for here, <laughs> the audience here, but uh, any Internet heresy hunters. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is not an Orthodox Christian. And specifically, he did not believe in the verbal complete, we call it plenary, inspiration of the scriptures. Uh, he believed, he, he was very much a modernist. Uh, he was uh, influenced by modernist theology and, and the whole trying to find out who the actual writer was and who the historical Jesus was and, and all that silliness. Uh, that it was just, it was the atmosphere of learning of the day. But along comes a guy named Karl Barth who says, wait a minute, a Christianity that has nothing to say against, at Karl Barth's time, it was World War I, uh, the Great War, and Germany's aggression in, in the Great War. A Christianity that has nothing to say to this is not worth living for. And so he uh, developed this, this, what became known as neo Orthodoxy, a new orthodoxy, uh, and and so the neo-orthodox theologians, uh, sort of starting with Karl Barth, but then moving on, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer is definitely one of the neo-orthodox guys. Um, their emphasis is on your faith must be lived out. It must be a living faith. It must impact what you do, how you vote. Uh, how you work, where you work. There must be, there must be an engagement with the scriptures. And, and this is something that I think they do add to our conversation 
when they emphasize, when we can pick up from them this emphasis on the importance of engaging with the Scriptures. Now, there are other theologians that probably do it better, certainly the Puritans, and uh, what was known with the Puritans as experimental piety. Uh, Experimental doesn't mean try it out and see if it works. Experimental means you're experiencing it. It, it's It's a piety that is lived out in your life, and that was at the core of the Puritan movement. And so the neo-Orthodox guys very much saw themselves as continuing in this vein. Uh, they, they saw themselves, Karl Barth believed that he was bringing John Calvin uh, and Calvinism into the 20th century uh, and, and all of that. So bottom line, we're going to look at the cost of discipleship. We're going to look at it over the next several weeks. And we're going to draw some, some wisdom from... Bonhoeffer. So let me give you a quick recap on Bonhoeffer himself. He was born in 1936, or 1906, I'm sorry, born in 1906 and was executed in 1945. He was hung for treason. Uh, and he was executed three weeks before the Allies took over Germany and won the war. Uh, they knew they were losing. <laughs> and one of their last things before they lost was they needed to kill this guy. Uh, and the reason that that was the case, um, he had been involved in an assassination plot of Adolf Hitler. And that immediately, I think, A, lends him a little bit of street cred. <laughs> it, it lends him a little bit of, of credibility. If, if, this is a man who believed in... And, and let, me, let me tell you how he came to be assassinated. Uh, he believed that the Christian's duty is to care for the oppressed... And the greatest oppressed class in Germany were the Jewish people. And so as Christians, the Jews are being oppressed. We have a duty, living out Christ's example, to stop, (laughs) stop this oppression of the Jews. And so he did not want to fight in the army. He was already a well-known theologian. He was a well-known pastor. And so some friends said, listen, we can get you out of the draft. If you'll come to New York City, uh, we will get you a teaching assignment at uh, Union Theological Seminary. We'll provide you with an apartment. Uh, you can come and you can be safe from your time in, uh, in, in Germany in World War II. So he gets on a ship. So, you know, it's not a... Uh, it's not a short flight. It's not an eight-hour flight from Berlin to New York City anymore. Uh, he gets on a ship. He travels all the way to New York. And the whole time, he said, he feels like he's Jonah. He's, he's running away from where God has called him to be. And he lands in New York, and he immediately starts saying, I'm not sure that I can stay here long term. I might be able to commit to a year. 
and it's just weighing on his conscience that he needs to be back in Germany and he needs to be standing for the oppressed in Germany. He's a German, that's his call. And so he actually only stays in New York City 26 days, which isn't much longer than the boat ride <laughs> that, that it took to get there. Uh, he only spends 26 days in New York City. But during that time, he attends a Baptist church in New York City called Abyssinian Baptist Church. And it's a black uh, Baptist church community. And he said he saw the emotion, he saw the, the vigor, the vitality of these people who at that time were being oppressed. These are joyful Christians living in a day and time in the 1930s where because of the color of their skin, they're not afforded employment, education, other opportunities that other people are afforded. And so here he is with the oppressed, quote-unquote, the, the oppressed class, and they in their worship are joyful, vibrant. They are enthusiastic. The preaching is getting the, you know, the amen, preach, preach it, brother. And, and, and you know, the typical Baptist uh, African-American experience, Bonhoeffer was just blown away. He said, this is worship. Uh, this is what worship should be. This is not like these cold lectures uh, that we get in, in other places. And so, so seeing that enthusiasm, seeing that vitality uh, in the preaching really spoke to him. But at the same time, he uh, said, uh, my place is in Germany. Uh, I, I can't stay here in New York City. I'm, I'm running away from the very cross that God has placed before me. The cross that I am called to bear is to be in Germany and to do everything I can to stop Hitler uh, and to stop the work that he's doing. And and so his, like I said, the, the, the core of his theology or the core of his ethic, the, the core principle that drove him was that a Christian must... Help the oppressed. This is, in his mind, what is at the heart of the Christian ethic. God, in Exodus, comes in to a people who are oppressed and brings them liberty and calls them my people. Uh, Christ ministers to the Gentiles. Uh, he, he comes and he, he ministers to those who are oppressed by demons, uh, who, who are under this burden. And so we as Christians must also identify the oppressed and do what we can, do everything we can to help build them up and, and to liberate them. And I'll go ahead and say this real quickly. That's one of the, and, and when, when you hear me make some critical or, uh, statements, let me, let me underline all of this. Every criticism I am ever going to make about Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer is going to still be read, loved, and studied long after I'm dead and gone. Long after I'm forgotten. <laughs> so when I say, I think he falls short here, or I think he falls short there, I am in no way intending to say, because I've got all the answers. Uh, I've learned much from Bonhoeffer. But there's some ways he falls short. And here, 
is, is one of those ways. The problem with that ethic, the, the problem with engaging in that way, is who are the oppressed? And what is the biblical engagement with the oppressed? And so I'll give you an example where, you know, back in the 1940s, we can easily say the Jews and Hitler is the oppressor. So today, there are classes of people who are oppressed. And I'll give you, I think, an example that I think we would all agree with. I think women in Afghanistan. <laughs> they they are not afforded the opportunity to get a education. They they're not afforded uh, a number of different opportunities. What is our responsibility towards women in Afghanistan, or more specifically, the oppressed classes in our own country? And that's where they started. Uh, Bart was was known as the Red Preacher uh, because he was so. Uh, he, he was accused of being a communist. Uh, he felt like the working classes were oppressed, and and he had a lot of socialist uh, uh, move in his in his theology, uh, and and so I think that's the problem. And and so when Bonhoeffer Bonhoeffer believes that the doctrine of the spirituality of the church is an escape clause that the doctrine of the spirituality of the church is an excuse for not engaging in the world. And he felt that that's kind of what the German church was doing. They were saying, oh, we just preach the gospel. We only preach salvation. We only preach about Jesus. We don't preach about politics. And they had nothing to say from the pulpit about Hitler uh, and about the oppression of the Jews. And so uh, because the spirituality of the church doctrine kept them from saying, this is evil and this has to stop. And I'm not sure that he, I would, I, I know that I do not go down his path. Uh, because I am free to say things uh, that, that are broken and wicked about our culture. Transgenderism and the, and the transgender movement is a death movement. It's a, it's a movement that absolutely attacks the image of God. Uh, it, it attacks Identity. <laughs> it says identity is itself fluid. Uh, and, and so that is of the devil. It is a death cult and it will lead only in death. Uh, so I don't have a problem saying things about the culture of our day. What I do have a problem is saying, okay, here's God's solution for it. Because God's solution for it is always complicated by our human failing. It's always complicated by our, our human uh, sin. Uh, whatever entities man sets up are going to be imperfect. And so when I bring God's word with all of its clarity, with all of its perfection, with all of its holiness and beauty, when I bring it and I say, because of this principle, you need to vote ABC, or you need to, in obedience to God, get out there on the street corner and do ABC. You, in obedience to God, must engage the culture in this specific way. For instance, should he have been involved, should an ordained pastor be involved in an assassination plot? 
He did it in the name of the Lord when he killed Goliath. Uh, <laughs> well, so, you know, I, I, I think at the very least we can say that's a challenging question. That's a challenging wisdom issue. Uh, and, and so, you know, there, there's some ways in which I think we, we need to be careful not to just become immediate acolytes. But, um, but there are... Sir, yeah, he did not kill Saul. He said, "I will not uh, kill the Lord's anointed." Yeah, so, um, so, so, so let's not let's not engage Bonhoeffer uncritically. I do think there are some 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 challenges in this, but I do think there's enough in Bonhoeffer that is very very helpful, and specifically. Um, in the next 10 minutes. Um, he opens the first sentence of his book, the first title, the first chapter, is titled Costly Grace. And he opens the first sentence of his book with these words. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. <laughs> and he's right. He, he is absolutely right. Cheap grace is what he believed the German church was preaching. But what I assure you, the evangelical church in the United States of America has been preaching for decades and decades and decades is, is this cheap grace. This Jesus just loves you so much. And you just say these magic words and you get your... I, I, I remember a uh, gentleman who, who I'm sure God has used to lead more people to the Lord than I have. But, but his opening shtick was, have you got your ticket? And the person would be like, what? What are you talking about? Your ticket. Have you got your ticket? What are you talking about? Your ticket to heaven. I can tell you how to get your ticket to heaven. And... It was a guy that I knew years ago. <laughs> but that was, that was his routine. Do you have your ticket? And, and I think Bonhoeffer and, and others uh, along that line, you know, that was just like, that's cheap. <laughs> that's a cheap grace. That's a cheap presentation of the gospel. That's, grace costs you everything. And the reason it costs you everything is it because is because it cost the Son of God his very life. That grace that comes from him cost him everything. And 
So one of the things that Bonhoeffer develops in that, in that first chapter on costly grace and the, the importance of, of grace, of us recognizing our responsibility to take up a cross, he says, we have run into a problem in our view of justification. We believe that Jesus Christ died to justify sin. When in fact, Jesus Christ died to justify sinners. And the difference between that is, if Jesus Christ died to justify sin, then every sin you ever committed or ever will commit is covered by his blood. And so why worry? (laughs) Whereas if Jesus died to justify sinners, then you are covered by his blood, and therefore you should recognize that you shouldn't be given over to sin. And and Bonhoeffer believed that we were we were getting off track on that. We were speaking about and and one of the people that he really does not like is Augustus Toplady and his hymn Rock of Ages. Toplady, rather, uh, his hymn Rock of Ages, uh, where Toplady says, "All for sin." Uh, what, what's the line? All for sin could not atone. Uh, thou must save, and thou alone. Uh, Nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross. Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no respite know? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. And Bonhoeffer said, no, 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 no. It's all for sinners could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. So I, I, I think he misread Toplady. <laughs> I don't think Toplady was saying that. But but that that kind of language just just really stuck in his crawl, because he believed that far too many Christians, and this was the say in Germany, this was the church in Germany, and he believed this is why the church couldn't say anything against Hitler, was because the church was just preaching this cheap grace, uh, and that we needed to recognize that grace is costly. Bonhoeffer is a Lutheran was a Lutheran. And so he uh, very much sees Martin Luther as kind of, you know, he's, he's following after Martin Luther. And he says, you know, it's interesting that Martin Luther already was committed to the monastic life. And the Roman Catholic Church, in, in Bonhoeffer's words, did a good thing in that we have this desire for an extra level of holiness, an extra level of commitment to God. And rather than it causing a church split, they incorporated the monastic movement into the overall church. So you've got a variety of different kinds of monastic movements. Uh, But the monastic movement, the danger of it was that it gave to the common man the idea that if you really want to be set apart, completely committed to God, then go join a monastery. As for me, I'm just a farmer I'm working in my field, I'm doing my thing, and I'm going to, to church on Sundays. Uh, but, but the really, really holy people are the ones who go to the monastery. And he says when Luther realized grace, and he realized how costly grace was, that's when he took the monastery 
and the desire to be apart from the world, he took that mentality into the field, into the plowman, into the everyday labor of people, is, is taking this absolute commitment to God and taking it into the world, taking it into his marriage, taking it into his relationships with other people. And, and Bonhoeffer believed that was one of the brilliant uh, aspects of Luther. And so I just want to read you uh, a little excerpt here. And so this is speaking of Luther. Uh, it was not the justification of sin, but the justification of the sinner that drove Luther from the cloister back into the world. The grace he had received was costly grace. It was grace, for it was like water on parched ground, comfort in tribulation, freedom from the bondage of a self-chosen way, and forgiveness of all his sins. And it was costly, for so far from dispensing him from good works, it meant that he must take the call to discipleship more seriously than ever before. It was grace because it cost so much. And it cost so much because it was grace. And one of the reasons that I would like for us, uh, actually, my time here. All right, just about out of time. But before we, before we go, can someone read for me 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Yes. So, I want you to just pause a moment and consider the context in which Paul is saying this. You are not your own. He's saying it in the context of probably the most personal, meddling thing he can speak about, to a man at least, and that is how a man deals with natural desires of his body. And the man in Corinth is saying, that's why we have temple prostitutes. This is a desire that I have. It's a God-given desire. And these are people that are dedicated full-time to satisfying that desire. And so what's the deal? And Paul in this most intimate, personal thing. He gets right into your bedroom. (laughs) He gets right into your pants, so to speak. He gets right down into your business, the most personal business, and says, stop it. You don't own yourself. That body that you say just has natural desires, 
that body that you say it's not hurting anybody, that body that you say this woman is doing this for a living and no harm, no foul, that body Jesus owns. Stop it. (laughs) And beloved, you've got to understand. We have to understand. We have to communicate. That is the cost of discipleship. He's going to get down into every nook and cranny of your life. And he's going to say, I want it all. I want to transform your marriage. I want to transform what you do on the computer. I want to transform how you speak to your children. I want to transform how you speak to your parents. I want to transform how you engage at the job. I want to transform how you engage in school. I want to renew your mind. I want you to bring every thought captive. I own you. And that is a grace that costs everything. And one of the reasons that I am hopeful, I'm enthusiastic, I'm I'm, uh, eager to see what God will do with his church over the next few years. I have no idea about Sterling. Uh, But his church in the United States of America. I believe that we have allowed a complete death cult to become a dominant force in our social conversation. A death cult that is looking for some way to find who they are, find their identity. And if I feel like I'm trapped in the wrong body, then affirming care and loving care is to mutilate me so that I can align with the body that I feel that I'm in. And we are walking into a season in which we are going to have damaged, damaged, damaged people. And they're going to come to the end of this experience and either choose physical death, because they've just damaged themselves for the rest of their lives, or they're at least going to be confronted with this is not where meaning and joy is. And we can give them something else. We can give them the story of a Jesus who demands your identity. A Jesus who says, your body is not your own. I mean, how relevant can 1 Corinthians 6 be? (laughs) Your body is not your own. I can't mutilate it. (laughs) any more than I can profane it with someone at the temple or whatever, somebody online. I'm not allowed to do this. My body is not my own, is in direct contrast to the death cult of our society today. And I think that the more you and I can give a hopeful, joyful, comforting, reassuring answer, for the hope that lies within us. As much as you and I can talk about the restorative, the restoration of the gospel, the restorative work of the gospel, how God heals, how God takes broken, messed up sinners, and that's going to include girls who at the age of 13 or 14 had double mastectomies and are never, ever, ever going to have children. It includes boys 
who at the age of whatever, 13, 14, 15, 16, had surgeries that mean they're never, ever, ever going to be a man again. Uh, their, their, their bodies are just mutilated, a man in that sense. Uh, you, you, can't, you can't take out the fundamental manhood or womanhood in which God created us. Uh, but, but people who have come to the end and say, this identity search has led me to death, we can say, let me tell you about an identity, an identity that's found in Christ, uh, and, a, and a grace that's going to cost you everything. Uh, so that's, that's uh, chapter one of his book. Uh, if you're interested in reading through the book, I'm using... Uh, the one that has a forward by Eric Metaxas. Uh, Eric Metaxas uh, also wrote a biography on Bonhoeffer that's an excellent biography. I think Metaxas may be a little too kind uh, to him. <laughs> I, think, I think Bonhoeffer does have some genuine clay feet. But, uh, hey, every, every uh, man born of woman except one has clay feet. So... Uh, uh, I don't think we need to demonize or idolize, but we need to see what he does that is good. And one of the first things that he does that is good is emphasize, this grace is not cheap. And we need to stop talking like it is. (laughs) This is not a cheap grace. This is a grace that costs you everything. Forgiveness and repentance. Baptism and church discipline. Both of these things have got to go hand in hand. So, let me close. I know we're uh, running up against the clock, and we'll go into our time of fellowship. Father, we thank you for these various voices that we can look at that show us again afresh uh, how we can better walk alongside and in your path. Uh, Give us the, the grace and the strength by your word and spirit to to continue this journey. In Christ's name.